I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch the first werewolf movie, but without any werewolves in it. Which is funny, Peter, because uh, Albert Brooks kind of, well, he, he doesn't turn into the werewolf, but he is in a movie where someone next to him kind of turns into a werewolf-like creature. Maybe like a ghoul. Oh, right? uh, uh, Twilight Zone yeah. movie. Yeah, um, but yeah, Aykroyd's yeah. the ghoul. I used to uh, think it was a werewolf, and then like I saw, that, that was my memory as a kid. And then I've seen it more recently, and I'm like, I guess he's not quite a werewolf. Yeah, in this movie, it's like he's he's erratic, he's violent, he's cruel, he's extremely hairy. He's so hairy. He's so hairy. Um, but well, he's, he's kind of like full, he's hairy he's in a wolf. way. Like I want to say this, Albert Brooks obviously wrote this, and he's like, I'm going to have my shirt off for chunks of the movie. Um, and he's like, he recognizes like I'm kind of, I'm not ripped based on our, like, definition of it in modern parlance. But I feel like he's, like, 1980s, 70s jacked. And he's like, I'm comfortable being being just covered in in hair. Yeah, so he's, he's like, it's like he's, if, you know, well, let's say no moon, no werewolf, just a person. Full yep. moon, full werewolf. Yeah. It's like if, if like, a crescent moon made someone just get hairier and act more cruel to people. Um, yeah. I mean, no one ever talks about the way that the phases of the moon impacts werewolves. We know about a phase. It's always blah, blah, know, blah. It's always Mental the cycles same cycles are tied to the moon. moon. Women are magic. Moon. You think the moon's like, I have other phases? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but where we walk, the moon is always going through ch- 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 changes. Uh, it's interesting that you would say that, Peter, because where we love to watch and we're changing months. Uh, it's a new month for we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course uh, of a month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our first uh, first week of March, uh, which we're doing. Uh, we we talked about January was like a very labor intensive, emotionally intensive. A month for us. And so we were thinking of like coming out of, of January and all the work we had to do. What would be, um, what would be some fun lighter months before we get into, especially this summer, which is going to be a very meaty double month that we're excited to, to talk about later. And somewhere in the conversation, I discovered that Peter had never seen an Albert Brooks movie. And, and so I was like, oh my God, like, you know, there's, He's he's only made seven movies, uh, and I would say I've seen six, uh, but his first four are pretty unimpeachable comedy classics, and they're not they're not uh, there's a lot to like discuss and laugh about and chew on, but they're not horribly I think like deep in the sense that like they require a lot of research they require a lot of like understanding of 70s or 80s comedy or anything like that you wouldn't 
not that Peter, you wouldn't already know a lot of that information. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And, and so it just seemed like a really fun month. And also we have guests of the show, former guests, a couple guests that will be coming back on who uh, we knew had an affinity for Albert Brooks as well. So it was a fun, fun chance to get some of our favorite guests back on this month. But we're starting now. Some people would go, well, you're doing the first four Albert Brooks movies. You were doing real life, modern romance, Lost in America, and Defending Your Life. He did three other movies, uh, two of which I've seen, The Muse and Mother, and one I have not seen, uh, Looking Comedy, uh, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World, um, which I've heard, heard mixed things about. Um, I am not the biggest fan of Mother or The Muse, um, but ultimately I think it's he – I. He's he's a filmmaker who was you know not the most uh, prolific in general either, either as an actor or as a or as a director because uh, he will talk a little bit about his his acting career as well I'm sure this this month but his first four movies are are like these unimpeachable comedy classics that never did uh never did a lot of box office or were like huge hits never never won like if you look at some of like the I think where you would compare at least some of his tone or style to like Woody Allen at the time, although um, notably one of those one of these people is at least a, a, a definitely a monster, and the other one, as far as we know, is not a monster. But like he never had like Albert Brooks is a movie he's never had like the I'm getting nominated for best picture and best screenplay regularly. There were just these kind of these like uh, critically acclaimed uh, movies that had a very, uh, very core audience that, that enjoyed them. That's kind of like remain today. It, it was almost like, I, I feel like Albert Brooks in this, in the seventies and eighties was kind of the equivalent of, of, of a, like, uh, I think you should leave or something like that. Like something that comedy nerds specifically crowded around. People knew him from a little bit from Saturday Night Live, had some uh, critical success, a little bit of commercial success, but ultimately was never as huge as some of his contemporaries. But we still look back today and 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 kind of cite him as a, as a comedy genius. So I thought these would be fun movies to both – a, take it a little bit easier than we had been, but also introduce some movies that I love and I know some of our guests love uh, to Peter. Now, uh, you may notice if you clicked on this episode title, we're doing modern – we're doing them in this order. We're doing modern romance. We're doing defending your life. And then we're going to do real life and lost in America. And let me tell – if you have a problem with that, let me tell you this. There are other ways to order things than in the order they came out. Did you know that, Peter? Get them, Aaron. Yeah. Can you imagine if you walked into a restaurant and you looked at the menu, instead of being grouped in categories, they were like when they were added to the menu? It would be completely insane. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. How would you even order? You'd be like, I, I can't find Diet Coke. And they'd be like, well, sorry, sir. That didn't come out till 1984. So you're clearly in the wrong section when you're looking at Coke, which, as we all know, came out in the 1900s or whatever. Um, so, I mean, it'd be madness. Um, I can think, like, a, a, I don't know, a, a library, for example. Mm -hmm. Take a long time, I feel like, to find stuff. I know uh, Dewey Decibel, the Mr. Dewey Decibel, is an extremely problematic figure. But, uh, you know, you can't just order them when books came out. Plus, like, the early days, it would be, like, what came first? Epic of Gilgamesh, Bible. It would be... Like, yeah. you'd be there all day. 
And you'd be like, all right, I got to have I got to have Beowulf staring me in the face all day long. Beowulf staring me down every time I walk into the library. I don't think so. You think Beowulf's first like he just greets you? There's a guy dressed up in a you know, in a Beowulf mascot costume. I'm like the I first the book. <laughs> I don't know what a library is. You don't know what a library is? That what said? No, nah, I don't know what a library is. Oh, it's uh it is a bar in uptown Minneapolis. Technically dinky. Huh. Yeah. It's That's great. so cool. Uh, they have a couple of books. <laughs> and I'm just saying, ordering them chronologically would be a nightmare. Uh, so, yeah, we're doing it that way. We're doing it that way for a couple of reasons. One, it worked best for scheduling. But also, if you look at Albert Brooks' first four movies, he almost uh, has uh, – I think there's a relationship between modern romance and defending your life and real life and lost in America. Where Modern Romance and Defending Your Life are kind of his two takes on uh, the romantic comedy, a romance or whatever else you'd like to call it. One from an extraordinarily unredeemable cynical perspective. And one that we'll talk about next week started out that way and actually became a a romantic comedy about someone overcoming uh, some of their worst problems. proclivities and real life and lost in america is really both satires about um america and the people that reside in it and every town usa and all that stuff so i actually think there's there's probably more uh thematic thematic chewiness by doing it in this order than just going through it from a from a chronological point of view and also because you know i you know, Peter, you were talking to me before the show about, like, doing what kind of research we should do on Albert Brooks. And I, I will say, like, I, I don't think there's, you know, even when you, like, go through his Wikipedia page or 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 uh, look at some interviews and stuff like that, I love Albert Brooks. He is he's someone who, anytime he pops up in stuff like, you know, Simpsons-related stuff or a cameo in a movie or playing, like, serious roles in Drive, he is always an extraordinarily welcome presence. And even movies that I'm not, like, a huge fan of, like Mother and the Muse, have a lot of good and funny moments. Like, I wouldn't call those bad movies. They're just probably in the three-and-a-half, three-star three star range for me. But, like, his his story is one of almost being, like, lumped in with a lot of other – a lot of other uh, people. Like, he he was, uh, you know, he, he was very much in, like, the Steve Martin mode of someone who was doing comedy and stand-up comedy in the, in the early 70s and late 60s that was really based on this idea of the modern man and – uh, their insecurities and their inability to relate to people and like what does what does what does it mean to be a, a man in America and in 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 the modern age which a lot of what his movies end up kind of being about as well and so there was an there was a lot of that kind of focus on alt related humor and trying to experiment with the form of stand-up comedy that came before him in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he was successful at that. He released two stand-up specials, one of which uh, was nominated for a Grammy in 1973. And much like other uh, contemporaries at the time, he quit. Uh, stopped doing stand-up comedy pretty early into his career. Uh, and Peter, you know about this. I don't, I don't know if you've seen some of the skits that he, he produced. Uh, he was hired by Saturday Night Live. In the first season. Yes. 
Yeah, uh, SNL has pedigree on that for those first couple seasons is not just like on the front of the stage, like the back of the house comedy legends there. Or it's, it's just an insane, insanely talented cast. Well, and they were not trying to people that not just people that like ha- had already been accomplished before they got to SNL, but people that like were headed towards uh, yeah. great fame. Well, yeah, and that was very clear from the first season, right? Because even though Saturday Night Live couldn't figure out what to do with them, they noted uh, two two people that they thought were destined for good things that could bring some fresh comedy perspective to the show. One was Albert Brooks, who did, I think, it was either six or eight short comedy films, um, almost in some ways like the the first digital shorts, right? They were filmed bits. By Albert Brooks, I have the I have the Saturday Night Live first season on DVD somewhere. So I did watch these, and when I went through the entire season, like when it came out, whatever fifteen years ago, I was like, "Holy shit, a whole season of, of Saturday Night Live!" And like, you know, twenty percent of it is funny. Um, <laughs> Dude, yeah, I I as the show traveled through Netflix and Hulu and yada yada, yeah, um, I had the I had the uncomfortable realization that. Uh, just because you like the SNL highlight DVDs, when you yeah. were in, particularly like when I was in, in junior high, you know, yeah. the best of the Christmas sketches, the best oh, of the yeah. Claro sketches, like just because you dug those does not mean that you can just like sit and like power through season one of SNL. No, and that I think I ended up getting the first five seasons. That's all they ever released. But, you know, that. That is very true of most Saturday Night Live. I think there's like an error, you know, the old axiom of like. You know, the funniest Saturday Night Live has ever been for you is when you were 13. And, um, you know, when I was watching the Will Ferrell, Norm MacDonald um, cast in the late 90s and stuff like that, you know, I thought most sketches were comedy gold. But I imagine that was just because, again, I'm being introduced to a new medium and and hearing jokes that I've never heard before and just generally being uh, somewhat somewhat, uh, bold uh, bold over by what they were getting away with. And, And yeah, but. Watching like the first season of Saturday Night Live is like, oh, a lot of this. This is barely even a sketch. Like, what is this? Uh, but yeah, I, but yeah. I and I remember kind of feeling like seeing Albert Brooks was fun, and and I don't remember any of his stuff like standing out for me. The other one, famously, that Lauren Michaels like was like, this guy's going places with Jim Henson. They had a couple. They had the Muppets that were like their separate thing where they did. Um, you know, sketches for, for like four or five times, uh, which is so odd. Like that for the first season of Saturday Night Live is way more interesting to read about than to watch in completion because you have all these like, you know, SCTV performers and these people that become these huge, huge comedy stars and, and, and Saturday Night Live becomes a huge thing. But then you also have like Andy Kaufman and you have the Muppets and you have Albert Brooks, um, doing all this stuff for the show. So he, he did that. Quit after he just realized there wasn't a good place place for him there, and he wasn't really like mixing with what was becoming popular about that show, namely Chevy Chase and uh, Weekend Update and stuff like that. Um, and so he, you know, he started doing more acting stuff, and then uh, made made real life. And his his story in the in the eighties and nineties is. One of him, like, uh, you know, delivering some fucking fantastic performances, like in broadcast news, and making, like, essentially four of the best comedy movies uh, of the era. And I say best comedy movies not just in the fact that I think they're, like, very, very funny, but they're 
the rare comedy movies of this era that I think hold up completely. You've watched two now, Peter. You're going to watch the other two. And I think you're going to find that these, like a lot of the best comedy movies, are feel out of time. Where a lot of the other comedy movies that I think, you know, were bigger box office draws and people remember more, like, uh, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live alum, ironically, stuff like, you know, Trading Places or those sort of, those sort of Animal House, those kind of huge stripes, those kind of things, they actually, like, hold up much worse as, like, complete films. And they have moments, much like early Saturday Night Live, that are very funny. And then they have moments like Stripes is a great example, or Caddyshack, where, like, freak, you know, Freaks and Geeks very, uh, very uh, accurately was when they were making fun of, I forget, I, I think Bill loves loves Stripes and Someone's like, you don't like Stripes. You like the first hour of Stripes. Nobody can you tell me what happened the last hour of that movie. <laughs> like, and and that just becomes a, it. Just becomes a crappy action movie, and like as a comedy, it just falls apart. And then you watch, and then you you're also reminded that most of the first hour is just like, man, that seems unprofessional. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it would, be, it would be pretty rude to do that. But so many of the the comedies of that era are that kind of like Shaggy Dog loose quality, which matches, again, a lot of the, the, the comedy geniuses behind those movies. But I, I I think while I have a lot of affection for um, for Caddyshack and, Caddyshack and Stripes and Trading Places and a lot of those, they are – they're only funny a third of the time when they mean to be. And as a compelling film with something to say, they don't hold up at all. So – it's interesting that like his the movies that that Albert Brooks was making um, have a have a while they were not as successful, I think that they are rightfully still usually on a lot of like best comedies of these era lists because they were really designed to hold up well as like a film and a narrative and a and a kind of relatable characters outside of, of jokes. And then the other thing I'll say before we kind of get into some of your first impressions or just where, where your experience with Brooks was, um, is that he, you know, the, the filmmaker he gets compared with a lot mainly because he has like, an, you know, he plays uh, is Woody Allen mainly because uh, you know, they're, he's in a, he has, he plays leads that are, have a lot of anxiety and the way that people view him and how to interact with women and the way that society impacts him and stuff like that. But the, the, the difference is obviously is that, you know, Albert Brooks uh, played, played characters that were attracted to uh, adult women. Um, but even, I mean, even besides what we know about Woody Allen today, his movies had, I think a, um, a less problematic aspect to them that made them more um, uh, charming and f- fun to watch. Like rod- modern romance, which we're going to talk about today, is uh, is a like toxic movie. It's a hard watch. My my, I watched it with my wife, and she was just like, "Get get out, just please, just get out." <laughs> she said that to you. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, for bringing this to me. But I, I still think that, like, at no point does Albert Brooks, the character, or Albert Book Brooks, the writer and director, think that um, 
the his character that he's portraying is anything less than pitiful. And I think Woody Allen in his movies always like to imagine himself as if only people listened to me and thought like I did, the world as a whole would be a better place. And I think even though that those two the, the those two filmmakers get compared a lot, that is the ultimate difference between their movie. I actually think Woody Allen has a lot more in common with um, with Larry David's style of comedy, and that Larry David is a, a, a very annoying prick, as they would say on the sh- on Curb Your Enthusiasm a lot. But the the perspective is still that secretly Larry is right about everything. Uh, He's just an asshole about it and, yeah. and ends up in, in bad situations. Albert and I think Brooks, that Woody Allen's stuff is, is, is very telling that Woody Allen came from a, ba- a stand-up background yeah. because he'll actually like stop and bend reality to rant. Whereas Albert Brooks, like it's not as clear that he came from a stand-up background through his films because he'll very often take a back seat to let the kind of drama ensue around him. Like, it, he'll he'll not make a joke for an entire speech to the point that it's like heartbreaking and like when he does make a joke it's kind of snuck in in a very naturalistic very approachable way in a way that like makes these movies more heartbreaking because like I don't when I watch Woody Allen movies I'm like this guy is quite a character I hope he only dates adults he's not related to and when I watch Albert Brooks movies I'm like I feel even even in the most toxic times I feel a strange kinship to him because yeah. there's a sort of like raw human vulnerability there that does not fit the stand-up style of the time but Woody Allen's movies very often the, the movies that he start not all of them because he's made so fucking money but the movies that you think of like like from yeah from the Hall. 70s and 80s when he was still the star of most of them yeah yeah, yeah. You, you think of them as an extension of, of, of him very often um, that uh, his sort of personality and his, his stand-up bits are, are sort of driving the narrative and that like he yeah he will stop reality to give himself a situation where he gets to be um he gets to be right um yeah like standing in line for the movie or you know oh we already missed the beginning of the movie like uh like those sort of situations uh in in his early work like it's very different but like one thing that like i generally i'm not like attracted to comedies from this era is because of the snl thing that you just talked about yeah because like comedy does not generally age well half for social issues and half because the relatability of the times, what issues people are talking about, like things can be petty and stupid and still completely like tickle you. Um, but they need to be petty and stupid in a way that resonates with things that you're worried about. Um, and if they don't resonate with something within you, you don't laugh. Yes. A hundred percent. And this, um, his movies are to this day just extraordinarily relatable and hopefully not relatable in the way that like, you know, the character from, from modern romances specifically, but it, you're, you're like, that is the difference that I think gets passed over is Albert Brooks, when he's doing his kind of like funny panic stand up riffs or like things that would approach a stand-up riff like when he's like desperately trying to convince you know his girlfriend in um in modern in modern romance like whatever his perspective is in the moment there's there's like a sadness and a desperation to it and it 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 really comes across as like he he embodies the idea of of jokes as a defense mechanism i think better than probably anyone i've ever seen 
Like, Devending Your Life gets into this more, but he's almost like a deeply sad, lonely individual who, you know, who truly kind of, like, tries to build superficial connections through uh, plithy comments and stuff like that. And I... And I mean, how can like I mean not to get too far into it, but like you know how could how could I not relate to that? You you too, Peter. Like I think one thing that that a, a lot of people who you know uh, uh, who who grew up in our in our era and stuff like that, like there is a common like that was the joke about the Gen Xers, and even though like I'm closer to Gen X than you are, this idea of like sincerity being something that is for for squares or for older people and like the world's so stupid how do i protect myself from the pain and hurt through you know and people use different coping mechanisms and i think one one area that i would call attention to myself as having a real problem with through a lot of my life is is trying to use humor as a way to as a way to soften situations as opposed to deal with the emotional impact. And one thing I really like about the pairing of these films that we're going to cover over the next couple weeks is if you you can almost think about um, in some ways the character from from defending your life as the character uh, from from modern romance. Then in some ways it's one and the same. It's it's kind of a sad desperate individual uh, who is trying to hide their own insecurities and fear uh, through um, through kind of ridiculous actions or lack of actions, but a lot of times through like, you know, jokes that are only funny to him. And I mean, like I said, Peter, I don't know. It's hard not like it's it's painful. We're going to talk about that with the first time I saw modern romance. But like, how can you like I can, I'm assuming you can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the there's a there's a sort of um, relatability at the beginning of this that goes from. Well, yeah, a lot of us can be indecisive in life and we can be um sort of uh, uh, insecure about ourselves and you know sometimes in life we just like act out irrationally because we're unhappy and we're just like all right maybe breaking up with this person will make me happy oh maybe yeah. forcibly getting back together with this person will make me happy um maybe taking up this new hobby will make me happy like i think everyone can kind of relate to that but as the movie goes on and his behavior ventures into stalker territory it's not that, like, he gets worse as the movie goes on. It's that as you spend more time with him, you start to see that the pattern has been going on for a long time. And that, like, that relatability of those first scenes is purely because you gave him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, and that, like, I, I think that one of the most powerful things in this movie is that by the end, like, you truly, like... you. You truly like want this man to be like locked up. Like, it, yeah, it's this movie is bleak. Like yeah. the ending of this movie and the text on screen. I forgot. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and I forgot how bleak it was. Like, and I that is again to go back to the Woody Allen comparisons. Like 
Woody Allen almost always gave himself somewhat of a, a happy or hopeful ending, right? Yes. Like, cause, cause he loved his characters because his characters really were him. And I think Albert Brooks does a really good job of taking the worst, a lot of the worst parts of himself and his insecurities and everything else and magnifying them to create these characters. Like, it's, it's not going to be shocking to you, Peter, that as we go through the other two movies or if you watch the muse or mother, like, Albert Brooks is basically playing an Albert Brooks character, right? He's not – It's later on in his career, he does some great things like in Drive and stuff like that where he's he's not playing Albert Brooks. But even in stuff like Broadcast News, which I'm, I'm assuming you've seen Broadcast News. I have not. Oh, you haven't? Oh, Broadcast nope. News is amazing. Avoided uh, it for the same reason that I've avoided many comedies from the 70s and 80s. Uh, so uh, one that I now holds up know tre- that they're great. Yeah, that like, one holds up tremendous. I actually just wa- rewatched it again. I saw it when I was in high school, and I rewatched it again uh, a couple years ago when when Blank Check was doing their James L. Brooks, um, uh, 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 whatever series miniseries, and uh, it's it's yeah, it's even more fantastic, and somehow holds up even better. Uh, yeah, but now that I've heard enough people recommending it, yeah. the problem is the context that it was originally recommended to me in is the same context that like a lot of these movies are recommended to me in. Is it's like, like the oh, AFI that's a great old laughs. comedy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like that's not that's not really compelling to me because I, I especially growing up like as a comedy fan, I was like I I kind of knew that there was a limitation to what stuff would actually tickle me, and I'm like yeah. Unless I, I, you know, now I'm opening myself up to that sort of genre, the sort of very personal, uh, you know, like uh, Heartbreak Kid and like the very personal yeah. sort of like dramedies of the 70s and 80s. I'm like opening myself up to more. But like for a long time, I was like, no, we didn't we didn't make good comedies until the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually like I think when I saw broadcast news when I was in high school, it a lot of those movies that I watch, I think probably even when I first watched Lost in America, I'm really excited to revisit Lost in America because I did really like it. But it's also a movie about someone in a like in a midlife crisis, sort of. And something I can probably like I'm not in a midlife crisis, Peter, but uh, I can probably relate more to it now than I could when I was when I was 22, which maybe gets into like so I. I watched Modern, Modern Romance because of how much I loved uh, Defending Your Life and Real Life. I think I saw I saw Lost in America because it was on the AFI's Funniest Like Laugh or 100 Greatest Laugh movies. And then I watched it again for a film class in college and I really liked it. But it, it wasn't a movie that made me go and go, holy shit, I need to seek out more and more of Albert Brooks or something like that. But then I saw Defending Your <laughs> Life. Frankly, and, uh, and well, well, not to interrupt, yeah. but like honestly when this movie ended, I was like – now I gotta I gotta spend more time with this guy. Like, luckily, his character in Defending Your Life is a much better person. But there's still variations on the Albert Brooks type um, yeah, yeah. throughout throughout all these. But yeah, but then I saw a, a college friend recommended Defending Your Life, which he had said like was a movie he watched over and over on HBO as a kid, which I think is a lot of people's story with Defending Your Life. And I loved Defending Your Life, like absolutely adored it, still adore it to this day. Um, it has an ending that just makes me ball. Uh, and I, you know, it, and so I, and then, and then I went and uh, watched real life and I loved real life, uh, very different type of movie, but, uh, kind of one of those movies that you walk away going like, I kind of the same way I did when I, I saw Truman show in 1997, where I just was like, 
completely blown away. And then more so for real life because real life felt, you know, seeing seeing a movie like Real Life, which is about a documentary crew following, following this, like, typical American family around while trying to, like, not influencing events but very much influencing events felt like, you know, fucking Nostradamus wrote it when I saw it in the, the 2000s or whatever. Uh, but uh, but – then so I'm like oh well I've seen I saw them use in theaters that was actually the first one um, first Al Brooks movie I saw and I remember finding it very funny uh, I'm like oh I should watch Modern Romance and Mother uh, and so I watched Modern Romance in 2009 I remember it very clearly because I just moved from uh, from Wisconsin to to St Paul and part of that part of that move Peter. Uh, was I've been dating this girl who did not live in Wisconsin for two years, and um, um, but I, she lived where I went to college, and uh, and the goal was was that she was about to to graduate her master's, and I was taking a job in Minneapolis St. Paul, and like she was going to move there, and like we've been dating for a couple years, we were like you know quasi like talking about engagement and marriage and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then she decided to get her doctorate in, in stay where she was and decided also that like, uh, a couple other things, like I wanted kids. She didn't want kids. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't <laughs> go into that. Things worked out great for both of us. Uh, we remained friendly years after no big deal. But in 2009, I was not doing well from the breakup uh, for, you know, you, cause it was, it was that thing of like, okay. Like my, my actual adult life is going to start. Right. I have, a, I have the job. I have the, you know, girlfriend I'm going to move in with and get engaged and get married to, you know, I'm 26. Like this is where it's all about to happen. And then all of a sudden I'm at this job. Uh, I hadn't bought a place because I was waiting for her to move there. So I was living uh, with a, a quasi friend that I knew in like his room. Like he, they had a house and they had an extra room. Uh, and I was the job. Like my boss was terrible at the job, and I I was like somewhat miserable. Like 2009 was not a good year for your friend Aaron Peter. Um, and so I watched this movie. I gotta tell you. This was not the right time to watch Modern Romance <laughs> because it was so related. Like the first half, especially that kind of like, you know, when he's going to shoe shops and stuff like that and being like, I, maybe I'm, I, I just broke up. He's just telling everyone I just broke up with my girlfriend. And I think, I think the, you know, now I'm going to be the type of person who runs. So I need good shoes because the person who just broke up with his girlfriend is now going to be a runner. Like I, the amount of things that I probably was like, maybe this is who I am. And like, you know, puttering around a house and being like, should I play Super Nintendo? Should I listen to music? Maybe I should read. Should I watch a movie? Should I go to a movie? Like, you know, should I call someone that I know here and ask if they want to go on a date? And meaning, you know, like, oh, my God, that was my life for I feel like a few uh, longer than I would like to admit for a few months. And so, like, seeing it in this movie, I was like. I remember thinking, like, yeah, it's a good movie. And I didn't think about it again. And watching it now for the first time since then, it was like, a, oh, I was kind of seeing some of those saddest, worst parts of myself reflected on screen. 
Um, I don't think the like, um, but, like I didn't get back together and keep lying to everyone. <laughs> but like, you know, the first half of this movie when it's like just a relatable breakup before you see kind of the depths of Rob Albert Brooks's character. Uh, yeah, I was like, this was, you know, I it was too close. It was too close for home. It, it just hit a little too close. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know the feeling. Um, it's it's. Uh, I've been through a few bad breakups in my life. Uh, wasn't to say as uh, my wife and I have never broken up. Um, so they were mostly in college. But that feeling of just like listlessness, where yeah. you're just like looking for anything that can give you small comfort, and very often the things that you used to do to blow off a little bit of steam just aren't working. Like, yeah. Uh, like doing exercise, like drinking doesn't make you f- feel better anymore. Drinking yeah. is actually makes you feel much worse. Um, and like hanging out with friends or, you know, uh, going on dates, like all the stuff that used to make you feel like excited and, and full of life, like all of it kind of like sours in your mouth, uh, for a period of time. And like that, that's the shitty thing about breakups is that like, it does just take time until you feel better. And like, n- it's, it's something that you can hear and intellectually understand, but not yeah. emotionally. Like, it doesn't give you much comfort. You're like, all right, I'm going to feel like shit for weeks now. Like, Yeah, well, uh, and the part that this movie gets right is that idea of like, okay, what is my life now? Like, because this is what I thought my life was. You defined it, yourself through the relationship. Yeah, or, or yeah, put all, all these future plans and like. You know, you had, like, hypothetical time commitments. Like, oh, at some point we have to go find this apartment and then we're going to have to decorate the apartment. So, like, you know, when you're walking around Target for groceries, you're like, oh, maybe that would be cool to have depending if we have the space for it. And then all of a sudden, like, all that stuff goes away and you're just like, what am I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is – it's it's very well observed. The puttering is is definitely the verb there, um, the verb form there because – (laughs) <laughs> you don't know what you want anymore but you still feel like you you still know that inaction or stasis hurts yeah. so you're like well i need to go do something to feel better and like the the way that like this movie opens and they talk and, and like it gets briefly dropped that they've like broken up before and mary is already exhausted by this conversation yeah. and she and she's just like which mary i think comes across in this movie pretty unimpeachably um yeah. she's being like manipulated um and yeah, what well, almost a term like uh, you know the ending scene, which we'll talk about. Like, I don't think there was a term for it in the eighty one, but it's the love bombing, right? Like, yes, yeah. yes, it's it's something that cults do. Um, but the 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 the, um, the inability for him to uh, sort of take time and like look internally and fix the things that are actually broken within him um, as opposed to just making radical sort of like shifts like I'm an, I, I'm a healthy person now I need to get my vitamins I'm a healthy person now I need to go running and buy three hundred dollars which I'm sure in 1981 dollars is like eight million dollars eight million dollars yeah um eight million dollars in, in running equipment like I mean he is just, working on a James L Brooks movie <laughs> He he's making a movie for AIP, right? Like we find out that like we find out that he's making like basically Roger Corman movies after, like an hour into the movie. Well, he's the editor. Yeah, yeah. They do spend a lot of time on like 
what it's like to be an editor, um, which I actually really like. Some of the funniest scenes in this movie is the frustration of him him having to do his day-to-day job with this thing over uh, hanging over his head, which, again, also feels like very well observed, right? It's This is not a movie that is focused on the motion to get from point A to point B. It, it is very comfortable sitting with this individual as they have to go about their day while they feel like their life is over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the thing that like... This may be the lowest concept movie of all time. (laughs) Yeah, which is is something that I... um, Which is something that I particularly love about it is that like this is the sort of thing that you can't do generally speaking anymore. Like even getting studio comedies made now is like pretty tough, but... Studio comedies now have to have something high concept happen or something for like the marketing guys to grab onto. Following around a miserable asshole be miserable for ninety four minutes is like that's not a, that's not a pitch. Well, yeah, it's like, an a, it's an A twenty four or a mumblecore movie, and it's like super depressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's movies that like I like in that sort of vein. There's yeah, movies I hate. There's there's a movie called Simon Killer that I particularly hate. I think it's a Brady Corbett movie. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if he directed it or if he's just the star, but um, I haven't seen this one. The one I was thinking of, like uh, like the Duplass brothers movies or something yes, like the, that. Yes, that's. I think that's a good. I think we just formed the two ends of the spectrum where the yeah. Duplass brothers make movies about like miserable shits, but you can't look away. Um, yeah. Like, uh, but but uh, there's this movie called Simon Killer that's like stuck with me for years that I loathe, and it's just it's the whole point of it is like Americans going to Europe and treating it like a uh, uh, playground. Um, and treating everyone like shit and then crying and running home. But, like, the way that the movie goes about that is just, like, so uh, just tedious and tiresome. Um, movies like this can be tedious and tiresome very easily. But there's something about the fact that the comedy – it's not that the comedy – it's not that the comedy, like, takes the pressure off. But it kind of does, like, allow you to gain a little bit of ironic distance like it the, the little jokes there which by the way by, by the way the, the, what i say is jokes like there's there's jokes in the first speech where he says like this is a no-win situation he compares the relationship to vietnam and that like just just a wonderfully as long as you mention it the line is um it's so good you've never heard of a no-win situation vietnam this <laughs> so and like, it's so good because it lays out the concept of the movie yeah. that will literally be there f- until the final frame the movie does not really stray too far from there there's no. a little bit of hollywood sucks in there but like there's not um the, the movie doesn't stray far from from that central point it's largely just following around him being miserable striking out we don't have any i don't think we have any scenes yeah, we don't. No scenes of Mary by herself without him. No, it's it's all from his perspective. Yeah, and like even the way the the opening scenes are shot, it's like there's a lot of. At first, I was like I'm a little annoyed, but eventually it comes back there. Where like, I eventually understood what he's doing. In the opening scene, there's two shots of Mary and Robert together, like sitting in dinner, and then they'll do one shots of Robert. But they'll never. But they weren't doing like match cuts of like Mary yeah. in a one shot, and you're just like, I noticed that too. What is what is Albert? Is Albert? Is this like a narcissist thing? Like Albert Brooks 
is not like letting us look at this woman like we can't even have a moment with her like sad face as she's being broken up with and i was yeah. like oh maybe mary's not a character maybe maybe like albert brooks isn't spending time on this character so that we don't dwell too much on mary this is going to be about a miserable shit that goes from miserable relationship to miserable relationship and when in fact it's it's that he's doing that but it's all with one person and that he himself doesn't really think about her so the film doesn't take time to like think about her and like that's pretty that's pretty powerful because as the movie goes on it 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 doesn't need to lend a subtle hand to the filmmaking because sorry it can lend a subtle hand to the filmmaking because any reasonable human being who's not a men's rights activist um <laughs> yeah would would 15 minutes in be able to spot okay this guy is this guy is sad. He's on a downward spiral, and he's just trying to find anyone that'll comfort him. And oh no, he's gonna he's gonna make Mary gonna an object to yeah. make him t- momentarily feel better, or an object for him to fixate on. And like, oh, I can I can control her, and then maybe if I control her, I can control the way that I feel about me. Well, you know, ironically, uh, just because the name is the only the only ironic part is the name is the same. But he does the 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 character that Rob in this movie reminds me the most of is Rob in another movie in High Fidelity. Yeah, right. Yeah, I the, think the, I, I, High Fidelity at least has like a cathartic like yelling at him in the car moment. This movie doesn't really have that. No, well, Rob, I think you know part of the and I I misinterpreted Rob. When I first saw it, when that movie came out when I was 17, uh, as like a, a, um, a relatable, non-toxic person who finally finds his person. Uh, and then, like, as I kept watching it as I got older, it was like, holy shit, this guy. You know, because you, you just – you miss those things when you're 17. And most of your relationships when you're 17 suck, right? So, like – and It's also very easy to put movies into a specific romantic comedy context because it's more comforting. Yeah, and John Cusack is very charming and there's very funny people in that movie and, like – you know, I mean, John Cusack's whole thing is like how lovable and how dateable he is, right? That was that yeah. was like why people loved John Cusack, which is also why he's so perfect for High Fidelity. But I, the satire or the how how shitty of a person Rob is, missed me. But like uh, until I was a little older. Uh, but here it's it's the same thing. There's a, there's a scene that's so perfect. Now keep it in mind. Much this is probably why it reminds me of of Rob and High Fidelity, where he has that whole thing about getting broken up by. Um, that movie critic uh, girlfriend in that movie and when he confronts her and she says you you broke up with me you ruined my life his takeaway is oh that's what I don't have to worry about because I she didn't break up with me like he doesn't like recognize the pain that he's caused and so in this movie he's the breaker up like we start the movie he's breaking up with her um, so the pain is at the very least self-inflicted, right? He, it's not like, uh, but then he finally gets back together with her and they have sex and then she's going to work and he immediately is concerned about, um, the clothes that she's wearing and that they may attract other men. And that was like the, the high fidelity connection, this idea of like, you know, for, for lack of a better parlance, you did you were fine like you broke up with her you hurt her you you know ended this thing you were fine with her going out in the world and the second you quote unquote have her back um i'm using that not in the way that i feel about relationships but in the the mode of this movie that all of a sudden you are becoming controlling to make sure no one else 
gets her like a like a fucking you know and like someone who's just like concerned about their prey or pissing on their territory or whatever else it is and like that that really is like the underlining thing here like uh, the relationships the my relationships or his relationships always have to exist on his terms right i will break up when i want to i will fight to get back and then once you're back with me i need you to do all the things that I need you to do to feel secure. And then even without that, you know, he will, we'll talk about it, starts rummaging through her stuff and everything else to be like, do I actually have her back? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the, the self-destructiveness, uh, can't, uh, just reside, uh, as self-destructiveness, uh, self-destructiveness also needs to, uh, impugn into her life. Um, and the, 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 I think the moment where I realized this was more than just like, we've talked about, I forget what the episode was. We talked about a recent episode, how like, I don't necessarily have to fully empathize or sympathize with a character. If I can have some sort of like human understanding of them and a pity, like beautiful pity where you're like this poor, poor schmuck. And I yeah, feel like I, th- I think you were of- talking about it uh, during funny games. Funny games. I think. You, yeah. You were like, you were saying that you felt that way about Michael Pitt's character. Yeah, yeah. It's just he's it's just last he, week. He's just mad that he, you know, he's he's understandably upset. He didn't get to have the full the full night that he wanted. Did he um, ever get the eggs? Did he did he ever get the fucking eggs? Did he ever get the eggs? Maybe they should make funny games and the sequel will be about that next house and see if we get <laughs> gets those damn eggs. Get those fucking eggs. They're hungry. They never had breakfast. <laughs> no expensive uh-huh. eggs. That's are? why they're so that's why they it's like the it's like a, a reverse twinkie defense yeah it's like because they didn't have any twinkies that day which yeah which came first the games or the eggs yeah he leaves the room and makes a sandwich and then but not with eggs but not with eggs he doesn't make himself a breakfast sandwich yeah <laughs> which are delicious just uh, just incredible yeah one of the best sandwiches ever you throw an Especially- egg on any sandwich or a burger gets better Oh, my God. Incredible. I used to eat Sunrise Burgers, and that's a great way to just put yourself right back to sleep. Oh, yeah. The uh, Red Robin, Royal Robin. I don't know if you have Red Robins where where you live, Peter. But Yeah, I'll have you know. I'll have you know Molly worked at Red Robin. And do you know that when you work at Red Robin, um, once or twice a year, you have to wear the, the Robin costume? <laughs> no. That's not, that's not, like, quite an optional. I didn't know there was a Robin costume. <laughs> I don't totally know the purpose. Maybe for kids' parties. Or I've something. never, I've no never, idea. I've been aware of Red Robins for decades. Did yeah. not know. Never seen anyone with a Red Robin costume. Uh, I didn't know it was yeah. a Chuck E. Cheese type situation. Hold on, one one moment. Hey, uh, hey. Uh, so, can you tell us about the Red Robin um, <laughs> costume that you had to wear at Red Robin? Oh, sure, when I was the bird. You were the bird. <laughs> is that what you're asking about? Is it not a robin? Is it a different bird? <laughs> it was assortment. You got to pick. So wait, so why, why did you have to wear it? For what context? Oh, okay, sure. So when I was younger, I worked at Red Robin, and I had mm-hmm. a job there as a hostess. And one of the like side things that you were expected to do as a host there at the time was take turns being... The bird. And there were two shifts. And one was called 
Bird, and one was called Buddy, which is why I refer to it that way. And Buddy Shift is the person who's not in the costume and has to walk around with the bird to make sure they don't run into walls and to give balloons to the kids and stuff because it you're not supposed to talk when you're the bird because it would freak the kids out. Yeah, no, birds so don't the, talk. So the buddy's there to speak to the children and the families and hand out balloons and all of that. And then... um. What else? What else do you want to know? We would we would only go out on the floor for maybe twenty minutes at a time because it's really hot in there. Yeah. And so underneath the suit, you wear like a body sized ice pack to keep you from overheating, and then you go in the back and you sit in the freezer and eat French fries to cool off, and then you go back out. And the whole shift is only two hours, and you make more money being the bird or the buddy than you do just being a host, or at least you did when I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was actually. I don't know. It wasn't like the worst thing because you got paid more and then you only had to go to work for a couple of hours. It, it is interesting. Uh, can Molly hear me? I don't know the headphones. Yeah, yeah, I can. Okay. Is Molly with us right now? <laughs> yeah, Molly with us right now. So it is, is interesting. This in is that my red, Robin. <laughs> so a couple things. One, it is interesting that my wife did was a was the the mouse at Chuck E. Cheese for a very short period. I think she only had to do it once. So that's Bill a weird Charles. parallel. Yeah. She, Mr. Um, Entertainment Cheese, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but also, I – so where we got on this is that uh, Peter mentioned that, and I've been to Red Robin from all my life. i never been in a situation where there was a bird or, a, or in this case, as you as you note, a person in a costume dressed as a bird uh, walking through. So, so I, guess, I guess my question was, are you 100% sure you worked in a Red Robin? Or do you think this could have been like a Saw-type situation <laughs> where you were going through a very elaborate task that clearly you passed? But No, all, all I'm hearing is that you were never there Wednesdays between 6 and 8. Okay, that's the problem. I, so there was a specific Robin time. That yeah, somehow, I, I, okay. I believe there were some other family. It was some sort of family night, right? And I don't know if it yeah. was kids eat free or something. It's like the evangelical it was a church night. time, right? Uh, yeah, sure. That I figured you would know based on the horse camp stories, but it's fine well, you know. the other, yeah, the one piece I left out also is that <laughs> the legs of the bird are like yellow spandex mm-hmm. that you are expected to launder yourself. So I would bring it home with me. I mean, that's good. You don't have to share leg spandex, right? Well, yeah. There's one pair of... The bird only has one pair of legs. I mean, oh, got it. So you have but to, like... You just have to wash them at your house. And then you gotta between. bring it back. You gotta trust that the person, like, didn't forget. Totally. Right? Yeah. yeah, the bird has a canonical number of legs. The good it's news is you're... These people are your friends at this stage in life. I mean, they have to be. Right. I, yeah, but I mean, they're, they're people that you know. It's not yeah. like a stranger was in the suit. It's like a trust fall. <laughs> so you you keep referring to it as the bird, as Peter said. We'll, we'll let you go after this. Um, can you confirm it's a robin or no? Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I That's how I remember it because that's what we used to call it because that was how we referred to the shift but yes red is a robin okay that was my last question does it have a name red makes the most sense i didn't know robin he wears a vest and no pants yeah molly was just doing that so we don't get sued uh it's like why uh they call uh the super bowl the big game yeah i like my name to be redacted from all of this (laughs) our our marriage certificate Says Red, Robin. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's amazing that, the, that there there is a there is a 
There's a eponymous red robin that, that prowls prowls the burger place on Wednesday nights. I learned something new today, Molly, and thank you. Kids eat free. Kids eat free. Bottomless fries. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I came and was part yeah. of this. I love you. Uh, we got to get you back on for a whole Robin-based episode, I think. Oh, I feel like this is all I had to say about it. Anything else, yeah. you can talk to my when lawyer. We, when we cover Robin Redbreast, we'll just talk about the Red Robin bird the yeah, entire that's time. A great idea. <laughs> Batman and Robin. <laughs> we already covered. We already it. covered. We didn't it. Talk about Red Robin at all. <sighs> I know this is a real miss on our part. Oh. Okay. Well, well thanks. Are you Molly. sure that's all your questions <laughs> for now? <laughs> okay. Bye, Aaron. Bye. Thanks, Molly. Love you. Uh, I figured it was easier I, rather than I think off. that is probably the best segment we've ever had on the show. So I uh, I think it was a good call. Uh, and I do think, you know, talk to her people, see if she wants to come back as a full-time guest at some point. But, it, you know, good to have, like, the special guest star cameo appearance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I invite Shauna. Uh, I don't know how she didn't come on when we covered all the rap movies, but... I mentioned her. Shauna has uh, – the fact that I was able to get her to record an intro that said, I'm Shauna Armstrong for that one uh, extra special uh, Night of the Living Dead episode that I did, mm-hmm. uh, that I feel like will be her only appearance. <laughs> I do love to ambush Molly um, because I just handed her a headphone and she was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> It's like when my dad had a talk show and he used to occasionally call, like they, they called my called my mom, like because they would be making fun of her on air and then they would call her to ask or something. <laughs> Wait, he ran a prank show. He didn't run a prank show, but he had like uh, him and his like he had, it was the Phil and Mark show mm-hmm. in North Dakota. Like it was tame stuff, but like you know they'd get into some conversation about something. But she was a regular character, on... Raw Dog and the Gimp. Yeah, I've heard the yeah. show before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then you know the tone. <laughs> um, I do think that's a perfect transition. I don't know how we're going to top that for generalities, Peter. Are you ready to talk more about modern romance? I'm incredibly ready to talk about modern romance. I mean, it is weird that there's a whole mascot I had no idea existed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Aaron, how are you? I'm doing great. Peter, I, I realized... What are you doing? I, doing great, <laughs> still. What are, what are you up to? Oh, I was just going to tell you that I think... Uh, I think my biggest problem with this movie is that uh, this is this is not a modern romance, Peter. This came out in 1981. This is a uh, 
It's an old romance, I think. I, I would say in a historical in a historical sense, this is it's forty one years old at this point. It just feels mm-hmm. like it's a lie, and I don't. I'm second guessing whether we should be covering it. Yeah. Um, now one person grabs a a cell phone. No one gets an iPad. This romance happened before I was born. You call that modern? Like, sure, on a geological time scale, Peter. Yeah, um, well, yeah. you could make the case that it's modern, but like, I'm you know, thinking geologically. I only think about from the time when we have uh, ice core samples, and in that case, this is not modern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> History starts with the Bible. Day one, uh-huh. Genesis one one. God created. Dinosaurs. I forget what he created first. I think the old atheist joke is that he created, uh, in the beginning there was light, and mm-hmm. then there was he created darkness, and then the second day he created the sun and the moon, so it wonders what he was using to light to light everything on the first day. <laughs> uh, well, well, actually, on the half way through the first day, he invented night vision goggles. <laughs> that was helpful. Holy, holy Jesus. Well, that's a great name. <laughs> But I can see everything. Jesus green. Christ. Jesus Christ. I love that that was just like a, a swear God mm-hmm. God used. Mm-hmm. Great riffs. Good times, love great it. riffs. Uh, Peter, what happens in modern, although we know it's not quite so modern, romance? Uh, a, uh, not so modern romance. Uh, in yeah. modern romance, we're introduced to Robert and Mary, who are going to be the central toxic relationship of this movie. There's not a whole lot happening outside their periphery, but um, he's a film editor for uh, American International Pictures. It's like Roger Corman's uh, studios, uh, and uh, he lives in Hollywood. It is fun course. that James L. Brooks does play the director. It is very funny. Especially because um, they'd worked together in broadcast news uh, six years after this. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty, was going to say, this is pretty uh, astute casting because James L. Brooks is perfect as this sort of like milk toast director who doesn't actually like have much of a vision, but like he's being hired <laughs> to do exploitation. Yeah. Um, like the, he's making basically like a Star Wars dash alien ripoff and. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like very self-conscious about the fact that like it's, uh, it's a big piece of shit yeah and, it's a cheapo it's yeah. a cheapo shitty movie but like he's very self-conscious about that yeah and that um and that albert brooks's philosophy is like look movies are these types of movies are just made in the editing bay so i really couldn't give two shits what the director wants <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah yeah, yeah. uh there's a the, the, there's a, a sort of side part in this movie that at first it seems like it's just like well hollywood sucks but um let's just talk about it now uh it, it seems like it's just like hollywood sucks but it's it's actually an extension of his character which is that like at work he is sort of like this domineering uh personality he has an assistant director that seems like does all the work for him yeah um he has some expertise there but like he'll fuck off for like two days at a time and like the 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 assistant editor will will take care of it for him and then he'll have this like fit of passion and like be very inspired about like the narrative of of this piece of shit film and then uh the director will come in and provide some friction then he just kind of rolls over for him or the director will come in and be like yeah this this shitty scene needs better footsteps and he'll be like no it's fine it's fine it's fine and then like he'll just roll over and like spend half a day just getting the right footsteps for one scene um so like that's that's kind of his 
that's kind yeah, of I th- character. I, I think it works well in like in the idea of uh, for, there. There are there's some very very funny scenes. Bruno Kirby. They're basically the only other two, like, named characters in the movie, right? Bruno Kirby, who's very funny, is his assistant editor, and then James L. Brooks is the, the director of the movie. And the thing that, like, at first it does feel sort of disconnected and, like, a, a few asides at the, uh, how annoying some Hollywood components are. But you start to realize, like, as he he is putting like he doesn't really care he's good at the job he does fine people think he's good at the director is like you know commiserating with him and going hey i want to pull you aside and ask you if you think this movie's good because you've seen a lot like he i think the woody allen or most other versions of this movie would would be that he also sucked at his job and his bosses were writing him like that's just a uh, like the the movie where the person is just a complete quote-unquote like or not quote-unquote but like a to summarize like fuck up at love is usually also a fuck up at his job in these movies and it's kind of weird that he's like somewhat competent and knows when to compromise and knows when to stick with his vision uh, or stick with what he thinks or knows will be better um which is different than what we see in his personal life, but that also you understand that he doesn't care about work and he kind of wants to like have to stop thinking about what's going on in his job so that he can like go back to kind of dwelling on himself. And, and that, you know, that is relatable from a breakup perspective. One of the weirdest things about like these emotionally devastating things that can happen in your life and they can be a personal breakup. It can be, a death of someone you care about. It could be like, you know, Peter, you and I talked about five, six years ago now when Trump was elected, these kind of national catastrophes or something like that. The the weird thing about capitalism is that, like, you just have to go back to work the next day. And, like, so you're existing in this, like, point of, like, existential bleakness, but also you have to, like, cut this, figure out, like, where, <laughs> where this, like, little reaction shot goes in the scene because that's your job and what you still need to do no matter what's going on in your life and so i i think like in the way we're getting this zoomed in look at his life um i think it really works yeah yeah i think i think it really works because um it, it 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 creates it creates kind of a third prong or, you know, maybe like a second prong of like escapes that he goes into uh, thinking that those are going to distract him from the fact that he desperately needs to work on himself and go to therapy. Uh, yeah. Not to be not to be too um, Instagram me for you, but like uh, guys, that is, that is, guys, guys will argue with James L. Brooks about editing <laughs> instead of going to therapy. <laughs> exactly. Like not to go all Instagram on you, but like. It's, the reason people say it all the time is because it's true. Like, this guy just needs to go to therapy and work on himself. But he's like, yeah. ooh, but what if I make myself a workaholic? And what he's met with, you know, we already talked about he tries to get into being a health nut. And he tries to get into, um, you know, getting becoming getting into exercise. Um, that doesn't pan out because it's just impractical. Yeah, um, he, well, he spends that night that we kind of reference, But he is like, there's like. I love that scene. It's like 15 minutes of him walking around the house. He's on Quaaludes because he leaves work. Bruno Bruno Kirby is like, okay, let's just power through it. And he looks at him and goes, okay, let's power through it. And he's like, 
I'm not the kind of person that can power through it. <laughs> yeah. Like, which is he, so funny. He plays yeah. with being a workaholic in the yeah. same sense that he plays with uh, exercise where he puts out all the gear. He goes to the track. He almost takes out a runner who's a serious runner running around the track. And then he runs immediately to a phone booth to start calling Mary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Leaving messages on her machine. And then he calls someone else too, right? Because he's like, okay, I'm single. I better go on a date. So he One calls, of the best jokes in the movie. So he calls this a yeah. woman named Ellen. Yep. Um, and he <laughs> he uh, gets he he gets in the car. And he he, he overpromises, right? He's like, yeah, he's I'm like, gonna, we're gonna go. He's on Quaaludes. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, I'm gonna go and we're gonna um, <clears throat> we're gonna go to um, you have know, a picnic. We're gonna have the most romantic the night of your life. Yeah, yeah. like. Just an incredible, just an incredible experience. It's gonna be super romantic. I've always had feelings for you. And then he wakes up the next day and he's like, "Oh, I just like kind of love bombed her because I needed yeah. to throw myself into something." And he's like, "I'll still go on the date, whatever, but not before going to Mary's house to torment her and be like, <laughs> yeah. where are you going on a date?'" Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh. The. <laughs> so. He he gets he gets to the house. He picks her up, and in like one of the best jokes in the movie, um, he uh, he picks her up, and then he's in the car, and it's really quiet. And then he just fucking you're not realizing where he's going because he's just kind of driving. He drove <laughs> yeah. around the block, yeah, and he just drops. Her. I'm not ready to date yet. Well, she didn't want to remember he convinces her because it's that thing of like she realizes that he might be full of shit because he mentions like a breakup that he just had. And he's like, no, we're going to go. We're going to go. Like, come on, come on. And then he just there's like a silent car ride where he just drives around the block and drops her off. <laughs> like, just, just it's, the worst. It's it's an incredible joke because uh, it's an incredible joke because like I think we've been trained by movies to not pay attention to like what's happening in the background because like yeah especially I'm I'm not like I've been to LA a bunch I'm not like an LA uh, specialist but like one of the jokes about LA is that like when you see LA in a movie they're just gonna be driving it around to whatever disparate points in town exist like there's gonna be no relate these aren't even in the same neighborhood like this the the their drive uh, path doesn't make any sense they'll like drop a, a name reference like oh, we're going to this Chinese restaurant uh, and, and and then uh, in this neighborhood and they're like uh, and then they'll uh, they'll they'll be driving there and they'll go through 17 different neighborhoods to get there. Um, like it's something you like train yourself when you're watching movies like just don't pay attention to what's happening in the background and because of that like the joke particularly lands because like you're just watching these two people be miserable in a car and you know this date's not going to go well and you know in a moment of wisdom he bails out <laughs> um, <laughs> drops drops it off so at least this woman's poor this poor woman's suffering can be um, she's really got saved by his yeah mercifully brief like no. he did not so like he didn't go, like, do the, we're going to go on a date, I'm going to sleep with you, and then wake up the next morning and, like, call Mary from her house, which yeah. is the version that I feel like I've seen in these movies before. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the yeah. high-fidelity version, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where it's, like, uh, they're so bad at the – it's not – okay, so, like, it starts with the go-to-therapy thing, like, look-within-yourself kind of thing, and then the only – because – the fact that he's bad at communication is only secondary to that because 
if you understand what you actually want out of life because you've done the work to like look at yourself like you can be a poor communicator but like eventually get to the point and like kind of make good decisions um he's like a bad communicator because what he wants is irrational like yeah um like the the moment when he first breaks up with mary and the diner and she he breaks up with her and then he behaves as if he didn't do something rather cruel and he's she starts to get up and he's like he's like well we should at least eat like what the fuck are you talking about like yeah it's that, I mean, that whole breakup scene at the beginning is so great because it does set the tone for what you're about to see. Because here's someone who breaks up with someone and starts doing all of the, like, this is me, you're great, I just have all this stuff. And by the end, he's chastising her for putting him in a situation where he needs to break up with her. So he's solving for his emotional issues the way that um, when I'm playing uh, a video game and I've had a couple beers and they're like, you need to solve this puzzle – um <laughs> like how that works because i'm just like yeah man i i just wanted to play some video games between coming home from the bar and going to sleep um i'm just gonna randomize the results and be like yeah this blue block can go here or this red <laughs> key can go in this room i'm just gonna try a bunch of random shit until something clicks like that is his approach to relationships yeah because he, he because it's much scarier for him and we're gonna come back to the concept of fear in our next movie but like um it's much scarier for him to look within himself than to um just um treat the world as if it's like a a puzzle that he can keep shifting elements around until he feels good and then when that that feeling of of victory or that feeling of of stability fades as it always will in those situations um once that once that feeling fades he's back to feeling like like yeah instantaneously because he goes to after the date he the doesn't happen. He goes to like a Walgreens or whatever. It was probably like something called like Osco Drug at the time or something. But um, and he buys a bunch of stupid presents. The doll is so goddamn funny. <laughs> Where he like he like is in the toy section. Uh, if you want Mary, to like a, a metaphor. He's making these mewling little noises like yeah. Mary. But like he goes, he literally buys toys, right? Like not like adult sec. He buys a stuffed giraffe and then a baby doll. Yeah, and then he says, like, if you want to know about, like, infantilizing your your spouse or your partner, um, and he, he squeezes this, like, doll that says, I would love you forever, and he looks at it and almost sheds a tear, and he's like, how much for this? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> so good. But, uh, but, so, you know, he leaves all the stuff outside of her house, and Mary welcomes welcomes him back and then that's where like the are you are you pathetic because of the breakup even if it was a breakup that you caused due to your insecurities stuff like that but yeah this you you mentioned peter i think it's possible to sympathize with him or empathize with him in the first half and i think that's true it's in the second half where there's a he, he gets her back uh, and they decide to date again. She at least is like, again, we're only seeing scenes where they're in it together and she's responding to his, uh, to his insecurity. So we never really see truly like what she thinks of all of it, but she's really honest. She's like, look, I do really love and care about you, but I also recognize that like, I'm not, I'm not putting all of my 
emotional or future eggs in a basket that's like <laughs> filled with holes, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is fine for me right now. You've already really hurt me, but you, you know, we've done this a few times and, but he immediately, that's when he switches to fucking like stalker possessive. Now I can't lose her again. Um, I'm the protagonist from death cab for cuties. I will possess your heart. Like whatever analogy you want. Cause it's, you know, don't wear that out. People will see your, your breasts and they're my breasts. He's going through her bathroom, drawers where she keeps in not just in one drawer mind you two to three drawers uh phone bills you know i i'm not gonna judge someone for how they organize their life (laughs) i I did in that moment i was like her house is generally pretty pretty clean who the fuck puts phone bills in a multiple bathroom drawers like (laughs) I mean, I know the concept of a phone bill, like, every single phone number is a little, like, that's definitely not a modern. Not everyone needs a filing cabinet, but, like, you, a cardboard your kitchen box drawers? is superior You need a junk drawer. Yeah, you're like, here's my, here's my uh, razor and a phone bill, and then in the <laughs> other one it's a shaving cream and another phone bill. And a USB stick that you will not throw away, but for some reason you will never, like, you for some reason will never throw away, but you never yeah. use again. You have, like, some weird, like, SD card that you're not sure if you've used or even fits anything you have, but it's there. You ordered it at some point. Um, I guess in this case, they'd have, like, a Betamax. I don't know. What would be modern in this movie's parlance, Peter? Betamax? In 1981, it would have been probably a Betamax. A remote the size of a fucking Chevy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but yeah he like he, and then like you know he's going to so he's like doing the thing where he's like it's fine she called a number a phone number and she you know he's at work and he's calling the phone number and noting it's a guy he's like showing up at her work meetings and calling her at work um, and then like lying that like well I had a big trip plan I came to surprise you didn't know you were at work and she's very astute she's like what like what do you expect to walk in on me blowing them at the table. He's like, which is such a great, it's such a great like moment of rebellion from Mary because like that is like the paranoid, the paranoid insecure man immediately defaults to, I mean, it is sort of like Madonna horror complex thing going on. Yeah. It's like he treats her like a child and like, Oh, she's my perfect little woman. Like, and then immediately um, when she's like not with him, he just assumes the absolute worst. Like she gets no benefit of the doubt whatsoever. Like immediately, yeah. like oh well, she's a woman, so you know she's out with all these men and a men. And now like, I want her, so other people will want her, and she won't yes. be able to control herself. And another weird sort of variable in this movie is the fact that like Mary is attractive, and the movie recognizes that over and over again. Like people make very weird comments to Albert Brooks about, like, "What yeah. can I?" Like he called, like a friend calls him, basically, or somebody calls uh, him when he's like, at the James L. Brooks like party. Yeah, yeah. Somebody at a at a party basically is like, "The woman's really fine," and it's like clear he's like asking, like, "Is she available?" And yeah. he gets very uncomfortable. And like in that moment, it's like <clears throat> you empathize with him. And, like, yeah, it is kind of weird that someone would make that comment like i understand the swinging 70s and all but like he wasn't wearing like a pineapple t-shirt 
I mean, there's a lot of cocaine at the party. Uh, yeah, and then this is back, when, this is back to... when you could just casually do cocaine at a party. Oh yeah, the way that they offer him coke in the bathroom. So it's like uh, Mary's in the bathroom doing coke with two other two other guys. It's very casual. There's nothing lascivious. Like the movie is not casting judgment on her for that. She's just having fun. No, um, he is, which is very critical. He he's like, gossip. oh, got something on your nose? I see. Yeah, yeah, he's just being a dick because he, she's doing something outside of his control and the fact that she was, like, alone with two men. And um, and then she has, like, a connection with one of them. And then one of them is completely fucking zonked and he's like, we can drive her home later. <laughs> like And, like, th- those little moments. And also, oh, uh, right the night he's bro- he breaks up with her, somebody calls him to do basically like the 1980s version of LinkedIn, which is just like, Hey, do you know of any job offers? Is this project? Up? Oh like, yeah. I, I need, I need some work. Like somebody, a fellow editor. And the guy asks, he's like, Oh, well, if you and Mary are broken up, like, you know, do you mind? Can I, can I take her on a date? <laughs> um, like there are moments in the movie where there's like legitimate, like threats to the relationship, but he, but like he turns that and he like, it, it, it doesn't, his but that's the thing. It's, it's a threat. That. If it's a, it's the old adage, right? Like, if it's a legitimate threat to the relationship, and you guys have determined that you're monogamous, which, for what it's worth, there are a few moments in this movie where it seems like Albert Brooks has determined they're monogamous, and Mary has never agreed to that. Uh, but that's uh, they they don't drill into that enough that it's worth like discussing the mm-hmm. hypotheticals, but. Uh, but it is the old adage that like okay well if they if they are monogamous and Albert Brooks feels like he has a legitimate cons- like that there's a legitimate threat to their relationship then then either it the problem is his or hers but that threat already exists right like if you're worried that someone going hey your ex girlfriend's really attractive or whatever could I date her or your girlfriend's attractive are you guys you know, couple that that's a threat, it speaks more to, like, some already deficit in your relationship that exists. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't I don't want to... I mean, I can. It doesn't matter. Um, it's our show. Um, without being too personal, I think my wife and I have a pretty healthy relationship. But, like, part of... Part of, like, being an adult and being out in the world is, like... <laughs> Um, people flirting with your partner or people uh, in some way like yeah. um, trying to figure out the limits of, of that person's like relationship like that's yeah. just part of like being out in the world and like it's something that like you know this movie doesn't necessarily view it you know maybe maybe in a sense the, t- the, the title Modern Romance is referring to this but I don't really see it as like referring to it as like well now that women are out in the workforce men have to watch out for threats I see it more as like he the movie is specifically about his insecurity doesn't allow for that whereas like if when if somebody like i like i uh, when i get hit on at the grocery store or whatever um the which doesn't happen as much anymore now that we all have masks on but when it used to happen i would come home and laugh and tell my wife about it and she wouldn't be like who's that bitch like there's like it's part of being alive is that like some people don't they, either they you know like before we were married they did there was no ring to clearly indicate it yeah and like some people didn't care like or some people are just like flirting because flirting is like a mean like a, a means to itself like sometimes flirting is just fun um and like 
that's something that like has never really threatened me in my relationship with Molly. And we're coming up on 10 years now. Yeah. Um, because like, I, I spend a lot of time trying to assess what I want out of my relationship with her. And what I want out of my relationship with her is not her total fealty to me. And that like, <laughs> she's yeah. not even, a, she has to like coddle my, all my inner insecurities. Like, she has to meet the basic requirements of what I ask of her. I have to meet the basic requirements of what she asks for me. And then anything above that is 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 gravy because life is hard and, you know, we're busy people. Um, and that sounds like pragmatic or maybe a little depressing, but like that's but that's like that's life when you're working like li- like you don't have time to just like lay in a field picking flowers together all, all the time. Well, um, yeah, you have to well, go be you have to go share your partner with the world and like yeah. have a bit of trust while they're out there. And if you don't have there's a thing that he says late in the movie where it's like something maybe he's I, it, correct me if this is from defending your life, but it's like you have to kind of like love yourself. There's an adage that you have to kind of like love yourself before you can fully love someone else. Yeah, it's it's. I don't think it's a perfect adage. I think that like you know, there's a lot of. I don't think. That, I mean, there. that is that's kind of the defending your life like theme. Yeah, but I, I think that's a. I, I think that's a old adage. Yeah, and there's problems with it. Like obviously, like you know, I think people that have depressive issues can very very much see that a problem with that. Like you can hate yourself but still be deserving of love. But that the idea there is that like. You have to, I think the central idea of that is sound, where, like, you have to have, like, an internal sense of integrity um, in order to fully share yourself and be able to have, like, a a fulfilling, healthy, realistic relationship in the modern world with somebody. And by the modern world, I'm specifically referring to the fact that, like, it's not just you and your wife out on the farmstead and the only time you don't see each other is when one of you goes to town to trade gingham. Like, you are (laughs) out. That's that's why, like, when I... I think the title Modern Romance does refer to that. I don't think it's about, like, women be working now or something like that. But I do think it's a little bit of, like... And and this, this part of it is me, like hypothesizing from 1981 because I, I like I think this movie is minus the fact as I've, I've noted they don't have uh, cell phones or iPads or Bing or anything like that um, there is almost no F- NFTs in this movie almost I mean I don't know if the movie knows it but every frame of theirs could be an NFT if they if they so chose to but I, I haven't seen any evidence that any of the characters are aware of that in this movie um, which is too bad because it's a good way to you know get get rich on the blockchain. Um, and I'm now mildly concerned someone could hear that and think I was serious because that's exactly what those morons sound like. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm being serious. Aaron's yeah, no, I know, I know you are. I'm worried people would think I was serious, Peter. <laughs> I have kids that need to be able to look me in the eye and go, "Did you?" I need to. Someday they're going to ask me like. Did you ever get into NFTs? And I had to tell them, no, I didn't. Because it's like that I... illustration from World War One, where it's like, what did you do to fight the Hun, yeah. Grandpa? <laughs> and the uh, atrocities committed there. Uh, <laughs> proudly wearing your Korean War stars. <laughs> they give those out for good hugs, Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I uh, yeah, I do think the mod- the modernity that they're talking about is this idea of like Albert Brooks 
I think is, uh, or Rob, I should say, is still thinking of his partner as a possession, as something that he keeps, like, he hides it under a bushel at home the way, like, fucking, you know, whatever Mrs. Cleaver did and, you know, leave it to Beaver or something. Like, no one ever saw your wife unless you were out at church or on the town with, with the husband, and there is, like, a something there that he's not able to adapt to in that she goes off and you know, on her own life and they connect when they have moments and like, that's a, that's a change. I, that's hypothetically, I can see where maybe that's what the movie meant by modern romance. If you look at the way that Rob is real, cause, cause I, I think you hit on a very good point. Like what does Rob ultimately want? And I think what you would have to deduce, even though he never says this explicitly, nor does any like possessive controlling person say this explicitly, I think he wants her to just be at home waiting for him. Like she, he doesn't want she, he doesn't want her to exist outside of him. And I think in terms of 1981, that was a change in the. That was in some ways a change of what I think you know, potentially like long-term relationships or marriages and stuff were like. Um, I don't know that for sure. I wasn't alive. It seems like from based on what I know, at least that could have been part of it. But why I think it, it holds up with almost no, like almost no loss of its punch is that that idea that there's this like toxic possessiveness that exists within within males in our culture that think that like women are for them to be possessed in some way and that anything outside of that is a breach of trust or there's some inherent like fallibility of women that needs to be controlled or something like that is still very, you know, frustratingly and disturbingly uh, extraordinarily relevant. Um, And I think, you know, probably Peter, you and I would both say that a lot of our uh, our you know past relationships prior or with our with our existing or current spouse ex- existing current current sounds like we have plans to up, update at some point but with our spouses we'll just say with our spouses that sounds better or like with other relationships is like I mean they're current they are current it's like what I used to call they, we could die together at the age of 100 and they're still our current spouses it's like when I used to call Shauna my uh, ex-girlfriend current wife I, 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 I did this too until Molly was like you you made uh, two of my coworkers very uncomfortable <laughs> I was like fine I, I introduced her to my uh, the company I work at is like five years ago and it's like this Shauna ex-girlfriend current wife um, <laughs> she found it some I don't know how amusing she found it but again part of a relationship is communication and she didn't seem bothered enough with it to tell me to stop because I know she would have if, if she really wanted me to never say it again uh, but it was it was funner when it was uh more more recent than we had gotten married but i think uh, one of the things that makes molly um just an angel and somebody that like is irreplaceable to me is that like there is a a massive just a, a huge gulf um that exists between jokes that she finds funny and jokes she tells me to stop yeah and in, oh in that yeah gulf, in that golf, I'm allowed to live 90% of my life. Oh, yeah. I waited. I can make a joke and she, a, she'll just like kind of move on. Not a shallow pool for me. That's like uh, I can go diving in that pool of things that she doesn't find amusing. 
what, I accepts it as part that I find it amusing. One of the most hurtful things that she's ever said to me was I was like, I was like, one time I was, I made a joke that I thought was really funny. And she was like, oh, that tickled you, didn't it? It's like, she wasn't laughing, but she was like, oh, that tickled you, didn't it? One of the most hurtful things she's ever said to me was I said, well, yeah, but like when we started dating, you thought I was funny. And she was like, I was trying to sleep with you. <laughs> like, what? This is a trick? Ah, uh, yeah, I, you, yeah, you were, you were sucking, and you were lied. She just wanted you for your body, Peter. I, I, I want, I want the lulls. Yeah, I, I mean, it is still like when you've been with your partner as long as like I think we have with ours, and you make them laugh hysterically. It does feel like a bigger achievement than it did ten years ago. It's, it's, it's incredible. The feeling is. It feels incredible. great. Yeah, it feels like, feels like okay. I know this was funny because you have, you are not. Trying to, you are uh, not trying to sleep with me at all. <laughs> You're eight months pregnant. <laughs> like, not until you, not until a couple months after that baby's out. <laughs> yeah, she she's cranked a machete into the headboard enough times to make that clear. Yeah, no, it's very clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the the um, like. Vast gulfs of my relationship is spent in that like liminal space between a reaction where where it's just sort of like, yeah, okay, honey. Um, but, we've we've uh, talked about this is very specific to us and not relatable, but I'm still going to say it. Is that sometimes we edit with our with our uh, spouses in the room, and there is nothing that I feel like in my core like the there's a few times that Shauna has given me looks that just indicate like. She is not so much disappointed in me, but disappointed in herself for being with someone like me. <laughs> and one of, one of those is she's, when she she's already on. felt shame for you a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, she's like, she's like, yeah, this isn't a what is wrong with you. This is very much a what is wrong with me that I that I am I am in the same room with this person. I've made a life with this person. <laughs> it's wrong me on shame on me. Or sorry, wrong me on shame on you. Wrong me twice. Shame on me. So the the the. The two times I remember feeling that, the two times I felt that the most deeply is one time when she walked in on me watching a Let's Play for the first time. (laughs) And, like, her questions on what was happening and just, like, progressively, like, she didn't say, it's not like she's, like, that stupid. She, I would have felt better if she ended the conversation with, like, this is so dumb, this is a waste of time, because... That would have given me some context that she had hope for change that she could affect. <laughs> so well, it just, are you watching other people play a video game? And I was like, yeah. And they're just talking for it? Yeah. Okay. Like, and just a look of just, I've chosen wrong. <laughs> like, this was a bad. And then the other time that is more relatable, I think, to both of us is... When we, because we edit sometimes in the same room, and when I'm editing, and we'll usually watch something that like I don't like a reality show or something. And there's been a couple times where I'm laughing at what we're saying at the same time that something I don't realize is happening that's somewhat amusing on screen, and she'll be like, "Oh yeah," like she'll relate to me, like I. Because she was kind of laughing or finding it amusing, and it'll be something along the lines of like, "Oh yeah, I can't believe him either." And I'll be like, "What?" And be like, "Yeah, the guy. What the guy just said." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm. 
laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it. <laughs> I'm I'm me from like two months ago is making myself laugh uh, very hard. Aaron, that's called an unforced error. Guy, <laughs> well, fair. I mean, I, I believe in honesty. You could have just grunted and said meme. I mean, clearly. Uh, but yeah, it's it's worse to like. It's, I feel better about it when it's you making me laugh. But it, when it is me making me laugh, it's not great. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 with you. Uh, I've been in that position, and I I always just say you made me laugh. <laughs> Oh, that's better. Yeah, I, I clearly, I, I gotta take some notes on how to lie to my wife, Peter. <laughs> um, well, ultimately, <clears throat> you're hurting her less in the <laughs> Roy. Yeah, that's true. That there's harm reduction that is a big part of uh, honesty in relationships. I, I take that as a good point. <laughs> uh, so where they end up, though. Is that... Uh, yeah, I was supposed to be doing this... This That's this, fine. We're doing it this way. way. Yeah, okay. Works. Um, so, they're at that... Yeah, so he shows up at um, a work meeting that she's having a lunch because her job is to, like, get big clients to the bank. And, and like, and again, just a, just a tremendous display of toxicity. She is doing really well at that. And she's very proud of her own accomplishments at that. Like, she's brought the bank these big clients and... His only reaction is not to, like, share the joy of her work accomplishments that she's proud of, but to insinuate that she's sleeping with these people to get them to get them there, which she obviously is, like, she says it's just tremendously hurtful. And, like, in this, like, scene that you can't help but, like, you know, empathize for, like, the the amount of pain that 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 um that he's causing her so but he lies and they have this he's like i know i came here for a big romantic weekend she's like you don't have anything planned you don't have anything and of course in like the the common parlance of like the george costanza which this also feels very proto reminiscent of uh is he then makes up uh, a weekend at a cabin to try to act like you know they both know that he's full of shit but at the very least if he can pretend long enough maybe It'll stop the fight, and then they're at they're at the cabin. He's confronting her about this the people, and that's when she's like, "Look, I'm proud of my work. I I got this huge client. You didn't even ask about it." Blah blah blah. And she breaks up with him, and his response to that is, uh, "Can't you see? Like, I I'm crazy about you. I'm so crazy about you that I stalk you, and I drive around your house, and I call you all the time, and I'm obsessed. You don't want someone who who doesn't love you so much that they are, you know." toxic to you or a stalker to you he doesn't say in those words but that's essentially what he's saying and and he's like but i just love you unless you know what'll fix it it'll we just get married and then we'll be in each other's lives forever because that's what i want and the fact that i don't have that is what's stressing me out and she says yes and they hug and they kiss and the camera pans out into snowy cabin and the on on screen text says that you know they got married in Vegas a month later, and then uh, a month after that, they got divorced, and they're currently dating and discussing the potential to remarry. The 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 Vegas thing is such a perfect detail, because I'm yeah. not imputing anybody for not having a full wedding. Um, they're <laughs> awful, and in the age of COVID, um, awful in the sense, like, planning them is miserable, and they cost way too much money, and, like, yeah. a lot of people get them for have them for um family reasons not because they actually want one yeah and sometimes um, like you go and you didn't realize that you should have brought sunscreen <laughs> and there's not had, sunscreen and it's we like, had sunscreen what are you gonna do? there 
Well, no one gave it to me, Peter. No one gave it. I'm to saying me. my friends hoarded sunscreen. Are you? I'm saying you know, my friends' ability to share. At this point, I feel like I made some connections with a few of your friends, and they've seen what my skin looks like. They should have suggested it. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> they live in the California. Had- they live. They're out there having fun in the bright California sun, Peter. I came from Minnesota. In a, in, so, in a sense, I feel like this is really on you. <laughs> Two very, very close friends who got married during COVID. One when numbers were basically nothing. And then one when numbers were starting to rise because of Omicron. And there was, like, really no way to predict. that. I like that you called it back. Omicron like it's a Transformer. Uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> I thought it was Omicron. <laughs> I, 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 no, neither of us took Greek. Um, no. You took all right. So you you usually mispronounce things, but you took I took Latin. Latin. So for a year, um, in high school. So I don't uh, know which way. To I go like Omicron. Like that's that sounds more like uh, you know, uh, like a transformer. So. Yeah, it's it sound it, it also it sounds like something you could defeat in battle. Omicron, Omicron. does not so much. Yeah, um, but. I, I understand, like, um, since we're just talking about relationship stuff, we had a wedding. It was made us very happy um, in a different universe with, you know, if my parents and, and her parents had slightly different expectations, we might yeah. have not gotten, had a big 100-person wedding. But, like, yeah. you know, it turned out great. We were very lucky to be able to get married in Yeah, we, we were, like, uh, we were, like, at 125, and um, I think we did 150 and 100, like, 20 came or something like that, and... Uh, going to a 300 or 400 person wedding is just like why would you do this job 150 was an insane amount of people to invite. insane amount of money and i understand that like there's a legitimate reason for just like getting eloped or running off to vegas but it's perfect it's a perfect example um for uh this relationship with robert and mary because um, no one supports the relationship probably <laughs> <laughs> no one supports the relationship it's because they are such a fits and starts kind of always fighting and breaking oh, up yeah. and getting back together. There was no way in fuck they would have ever been able to successfully get from uh, an engagement to a full wedding six, nine, twelve months down the line. No, there's no way in fuck they could have they could have made it there because it sounds like they break up every few months and like uh, maybe every few weeks when things are really bad. And, 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 like, it makes sense that it's Vegas because, like, maybe they both realized that, like, the urge to get married is something they had to go chase and not something that, like, like with my with my wife and I, I was like, we could have gotten engaged and then gotten married that day. We could have gotten married three weeks later. We could whatever. It ended up taking something approaching a year because of all the planning. But, like, I could have married her any day in between. I feel like for them, like the wedding, the, the Vegas wedding is such an amazingly cutting sort of um, post credits or, you know, credits kind of uh, uh, like epilogue because it is it speaks to impulsiveness. And as like sort of like we head towards like final thoughts, I think yeah. um, it's like the impulsiveness of of Robert is just like really heartbreaking um and like this is a movie like i talked about this i think with white lotus um where like i can watch i can watch a man be vivisected piece by piece in realistic detail but for some reason like two people having like an awkward conversation or an awkward conflict where like bad things are gonna come up and makes me squirm in my chair 
Yeah. And this movie, like, made me squirm because of that, like, that, like, wild running across town, running across existence sort of, sort of quality to Robert, but not blown up to the level of a Safdie Brothers movie where they're, like, doing drugs and, you know, people might die, but where, like, he's treating feelings like they're just, like, a playground. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a... It's what sentence do I have to say to end to get what I want out of a conversation, which is like fine if you're, I don't know, like trying to buy something on the Internet from someone on eBay. Like, yeah. you know, what do, what do I need to convince this person to drop $10 off the price or whatever? Like, I, but the idea of like having a long any sort of long-term relationship where you're literally flying by the seat of your pants and and not to relate this to the world at large which i say every time i do this which apparently is happening more and more because i'm recognizing how uh much i hate that phrase because i've heard myself say it but it's like debating you know the idea of like treating relationships the way that people treat like covid or politics right now where it's like i don't actually have a point of view um i will just say whatever hurts you and helps me in an argument and it doesn't matter if it's inconsistent with anything else i've said it doesn't matter if i actually believe it like nothing else matters besides me just getting past whatever this moment or winning this moment or ending this conversation or whatever i try to do and i think like as we do go to final thoughts this re- this movie works so goddamn well because it again it is it is extraordinarily low concept. It is about a couple that breaks up at the beginning and is back together by the end and what that breakup is like for the first half and how getting back together doesn't ultimately solve the like existential patheticness that it exists at our at our lead characters Rob's core. Um but the the behavior on display has only gotten more like prevalent. Um, I I think we I lost this point somewhere in like a sea of jokes, but I think both of us have you know probably we haven't necessarily experienced it ourselves, but like we know from friends and partners, past partners, current partners around like how prevalent this kind of like love bombing possessive abuse is um i think any any you know whether it's uh siblings of mine or friends of mine like that this kind of like um complete fragility of male ego to want to uh owns uh, own a, a person in the relationship in the way that they react all while like understanding that like nothing about it makes them happy and like kind of kind of constantly putting their own deficits and their own um insecurities on the world at large or in this case on a specific person like mary has to suffer the bore of uh whatever albert brooks is thinking in that moment and if he's you know the and that's why i love the the opening breakup scene sets the tone so well because at first it's almost like he's trying to punish her you get the sense pretty quickly in the break in his breakup talk that he he's like 
I just don't think we're right for each other, and I do love you, but, like, you just don't seem as invested. I wouldn't want to hurt you, which is, like, a breakup speech from someone who is trying to put themselves on the cross and do, like, a martyrdom thing while also trying to let them know that, like, I've loved you so much and I, you know, you're just not, you're not doing it for me or you're not reciprocating in the way that I want you to. And then as she starts to challenge that a little bit, that's when he starts to kind of turn it on her and make it more about like, well, I don't even know who, if you're sleeping with other people or stuff like that. And when he finally does confront her about the number, the number, and he's like, I, you know, I looked at your phone bill and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, yeah, I talked to my, you know, sister's boyfriend. And he's like, I called and a man answered. And she's just like, what do you, like, what do you want me to say? Like, yes, I, we were, broken up for a few months like this idea like i can't believe you would call like go through my bathroom drawers where i keep my where you know i keep my phone bills and call and call these numbers as is customary in los angeles county yeah and it's like instead of you know you're right that that the the too long didn't read of this movie is like men will go through bathroom drawers and call random phone bill numbers rather than go to therapy It's so true here. It's like, I'm going to make you suffer for my inability to be honest with you in the relationship, but maybe more importantly, being honest with myself. And the thing is, why he's not honest with himself is fundamentally what he wants is something that everyone would go, that's fucked up, that that's what you want. And, And I think that that pattern gets repeated more and more. Like, you know, when you start getting into, like, conversations with, like, right-wingers or something like that and you start going like so what you're actually want is like a world where if someone takes a birth control pill these people go on death row and like they'll never say that because that would be a crazily fucked up thing to say even in our current discourse that is very permissible about how fucked up you can be but it's like they can never be honest with themselves and will always play these little like, I don't want to ban trans people from sports. I want uh, – I just want to make sure that the people have a the, – the people who are quote unquote real women and girls get, get a fair chance and it's not fair. And it's like, you know, uh, it's just like this like post 20 layers of irony where they – they legitimately don't know what they think or what they believe. All they know is they're going to hurt other people with it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I the, the, the thing that I think where my resonance with the, the character stops, I was trying to pinpoint the exact moment where, like, I switched from, like, empathy to pity. And then I was trying to pinpoint the moment where my pity switched over to, like, sheer just, like, fucking, like, di- like hatred of this guy. Yeah. Um. I think the hatred is probably the scene where he shows up to her at dinner um, with, uh, at work. That's probably oh, yeah. where, where the hate, like truly hating this guy shows up where I'm like, even that didn't cause embarrassment for yourself. Like this didn't cause you to slip away in embarrassment and shame. And that's the thing that like, that's where I, I could see myself in the character for vast swaths of time where you're like, I have been pathetic and I have been, been yeah. um, shitty or said things that were manipulative and like, you know, like I have said things or I have like gotten back together with people just because I knew it would make me feel better for a little bit. Like I did do that like very early in my dating life. Um, but like um, the <laughs> I I would usually 
I would usually perform that sort of transgression and then I would go apologize for it and slip away into embarrassment and shame like, oh, I can't believe I because I, I would know exactly what I was doing. And like, the thing is, I think he knows what he's doing and he's aware of what he's doing. I don't think he's that dumb. It's yeah. that it's that he knows what he's doing. He knows how it affects her and because he, he knows that it works. And um, then blind, if you if we just make this commitment, everything will be fine. And she just kind of like says yes. It's like such a coup for him that he like threw this Hail Mary pass on a night where he he immediately ruined the trip to Idlewild, which I, I um, yeah. I, we, I've been on a few romantic trips to Idlewild, and it's very nice up there. Um, the uh, you can you can light a little fire out in the woods. It's beautiful up there. Um, and he ruined that trip within seconds. She was very charmed by the cabin and he immediately is like, so are you cheating on me? <laughs> like that yeah. sort of in, it, just casting a, doing a, 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 uh, just a blitzkrieg on her opinion, on her feelings is, is, is miserable. And, um, the sort of, uh, we've talked enough about how pathetic he is, but like, that's truly where I think he crosses this line into this, like, um, this character of like rebuke, this character, this like almost villainous character. And it's, it's incredible in a movie where he doesn't, he never physically assaults her. He never sexually assaults her. He never physically assaults anybody. Um, he never corners her, um, in, in, in small mo- And like, even like when they get back together sexually, like it's kind of unspoken, but they just sort of crawl into bed and it's not even that exciting. It's just like yeah. calm. Um, yeah. in a very well observed way, I think. All of that comes together into the stew where where it's like that makes this movie so incredible because it never gets outside of reality. Like it always feels kind of um, within the bounds of, of reality in a way that you can really focus on, like the way that like a single word can can like hit like a knife. Yeah, um, a single word can like puncture like a knife and like. Um, that mixed in with like Albert Brooks's like legitimately brilliant sense of humor and the moments of silliness, like Bob Einstein just grad his brother Bob. Bob yeah, Einstein we we just- didn't mention that uh, Bob Einstein, Super Dave Osborne, as a lot of people know him as, uh, is in this movie, and that he's brothers. With- that was one of those weird, mind blowing things. I think I learned five years ago that Albert Brooks's real last name is Albert Einstein. <laughs> And that yes. Bob Einstein is his older brother. I love the thing that must be a, like, brother-sibling rivalry thing that he includes that's so well-observed. That thing of, like, where he's, like, uh, where Bob Einstein's selling him shoes and he says, uh, how tall are you, like, 5'11"? And he goes <laughs> – and, and then he's, like, six foot. And Bob Einstein's, like, yeah, well, I'm 6'4", so, you know, I have to have – like, that, that, feels, that feels very, like, direct. And that sort of silliness in the movie is, like, particularly great, great yeah. in the early part of the movie. But, like, yeah. the way that, like, the end of the movie lands, like, a fucking, like, it's an anvil falling on you. Um, yeah, you expect relief because these movies of, again, going back to the Woody Allen example, these, these movies for the most part of these, like, um, insecure males um, typically end with if they're not back with the per- person that they they you know broke up with or something like that they found like a suitable equivalent like um, five hundred days of summer is a more modern example of right of that right like mm-hmm. where he doesn't end up with uh, 
what's her name in the movie? What's Zoe Deschanel's name? Summer? Yeah, Summer. Of course. It's five hundred days of summer. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, he meets someone named Fall, right? And so it's like, I've matured. I've grown. I've met a better person. And the idea that, like, one of these movies in any capacity would end with, like, just... The, like the saddest possible depressing ending over text right <laughs> that mm. lets you know that like this fake reversal that you see in movies where someone's been toxic and, ab- and emotionally abusive throughout the whole movie doesn't have a happy ending so we're going to give you the cinematic happy ending and then we're going to make sure that if for some reason you were bought into that as a happy ending uh, and he gives a stalker speech about why it's okay for him to be a stalker because he loves you so much. We're going to take that away from you and just be very clear that what you are watching is emotional manipulation. That yeah. does not have a happy ending. Yep, yep, yep. Great movie. So, Good Aaron, movie. what is coming up next on the show that we've already already tipped our hat at 17 By times. saying it a bunch of times, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, we may be recording it right after. Um so if that show ends up being 40 minutes of Mr. Ed impressions, you know why. Uh, but we're doing uh, we're doing Defending Your Life, 1992's uh, Defending Your Life, Albert Brooks' last movie chronologically that we'll be covering. But I actually think it really bookends well with this movie, and especially because it originally started with basically him making another movie about an irredeemable, uh, toxic, self-obsessed asshole, and he... Uh, he, he was not. He changed it. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that next week on a little show we like to call "We Love to Watch." Thank you so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> If you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs)